From the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth. A worldly story told by a group of travellers. A history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's four, 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 triple, triple, triple Z. Welcome, this is Radio in Colour. In the hour that follows, you will hear from some of Brisbane's oldest and newest residents. We're going to be talking today about work and play. We're going to be talking about the lived experience of being a woman, being in the workplace, and we're also going to talk about men who do seldom recognise work. We'll be speaking with some of Brisbane's most resourceful artists. We'll hear first from Tony Knife, who is perhaps best known for his role in the 1970s band The Parameters, responsible for Big City. But in today's show, we'll hear about a different aspect of Tony's artistic endeavours, his printing business. And then we will travel to the northern Brisbane suburb of Windsor, where we met up with Matt Deasy, who is the person behind Number 7 Printing Studios, which are responsible, by the way, for many of the gig posters and band shirts that you may have seen around Brisbane. And in the last bit of our show on work and play, we talk about that most important of playing businesses. We will be talking about music in the 70s. And we will hear from Blair Martin and from Peter Rowida about what it was like to press play on music in the 70s. Sex and race, because they are easy, visible differences, have been the primary ways of organizing human beings into superior and inferior groups and into the cheap labor on which this system still depends. We are talking about a society in which there will be no roles other than those chosen or those earned. We are really talking about human Some things seem like they will stay the same forever, but then suddenly they change. Revolutions in the way we live can seem to creep upon us without us even realising. In today's episode of Radio and Colour, we chronicle the lived experience of those daily revolutions. My name is Molly Frankham and I'm a UQ journalism student and a passionate young feminist. The role of women in Australia and around the world has undergone great change in recent times. From domestic roles to much fuller engagement in the workforce, women in Australia have come a long way, but the battle is far from won. You're about to hear from a person who has studied this transformation and experienced it herself. Dr Barbara Pocock is a Professor of Economics and Deputy Chair of the Australia Institute. In the minutes ahead, you'll hear excerpts from a talk she gave at UQ, the Australia Academy of Social Sciences' Faye Gale Annual Lecture. By and large, women still do different jobs to men. Women take their bodies to work in different ways to men in terms of their sexualisation, their vulnerability to harassment, the way their looks matter, and most importantly, their reproduction and responsibility for others beyond work while they're at work on the job. Working mothers in shearing sheds, whether they're farmers, shearers or rousies, do not go to the pub or union meetings like men. They go home to the kids and to make smoko for the next day. Four decades on, where are we at? We're certainly doing a lot more paid work than we did and our mothers did decades ago. Since the early 1980s, women's growth at the bottom has entirely made up for more than men's uh, decline in participation over those recent decades. Amongst women who are my age, 60 to 64, women's participation has increased threefold from 15% in 1993 to 45% now. So this is a really big change amongst 
this, and it reflects the pipeline, the post-second um, uh, wave feminist pipeline as women have come through. So for the first time, we have a generation of older women who have not only undertaken the kinds of reproductive work of their mothers and grandmothers, but often held a job for each of those decades as well. So despite their decades of the double day, they approach their retirement years being told they must work longer, that they cannot afford um, their pension, the country can't afford their pension. Their superannuation balances are woefully inadequate. For many, their superannuation, superannuation won't stretch further than buying a new car. It certainly won't generate a stream of income. More than a third of women have no superannuation at all. All the stories and the data on average balances in the Australian financial pages leaves out the fact that a third of women have no super at all. Most of the third of women who have separated or divorced during their working years will experience negative effects on their housing and retirement resources and many will already be involved in the care of their grandchildren as their children work. The increase in participation has been especially pronounced amongst women in their most intensive caring years between the ages of 20 and 50, as we've scooped those women from home into the workplace so that women today, in terms of participation over the life cycle, look a lot like men. It means that we now expect women to work for most of their lives around their children and to behave like men in that single respect. Sure, they work part-time, one in two, but they're expected to have that persistent relationship to the labour market. At the same time, their responsibility for domestic work and care has remained too little changed. Men have upped their domestic work contributions, mainly through a few more minutes a day on childcare, but it's more complex than this. It's not just the total number of hours people work. The fact that women's work sits across multiple spheres and involves unpredictable care and home, um, that needs in those spheres that conflict or overlap with the rigid boundaries of work, means that they're caught in a very demanding struggle. This means they experience levels of time pressure that are much higher than for men. For example, mothers of carers, seven out of 10 working women who are mothers, say they are rushed and pressed for time almost always compared to five out of 10 of men, fathers. Negative work-life interference is much more pronounced for working mothers and fathers, and it's especially high amongst sole parents, sole mother, most of whom are mothers. Unfortunately, while women and mothers have stepped up to work, the institutional adaption to women's changing worker identity has been so far from complete, both at home and in the workplace. It's been a partial, tentative, hotly debated set of changes, resisted at every turn, and despite advances, the deep inequalities between men and women at work jump out from the data. I want to ask, are the significant continuing disadvantages that women experience in Australian workplaces today just the legacy of history? working their way through the system over time. Surely with women now so significantly outqualifying men, as Di said, it's only a matter of time before the workplace gender pay gaps close, for example. With a 20% gender gap in university graduates, as The Australian lamented earlier this week, can't we just expect the pipeline or the market to fix things? Well, not if recent history is any guide. While big advances were made in pay equity uh, in the 1970s, just as I began my working life, We've stalled in the past two decades. In 1970, women earned only 59 cents in the male dollar in Australia, but that rose to 70 cents in 1972. By 1979, the figure was 80 cents in the dollar. However, in the last 20 years, um, the figure has not shifted from 83 to 84 cents in the dollar. And this year, it, the gender pay gaps reached its highest level in 20 years. Now, we're analysing that data 
ordinary full-time earnings. We exclude any consideration of overtime, penalty rates, the effects of part-time work, or differences in overall salary packages like cars and superannuation, all of which favour men. Australian full-time men now earn almost $300 more a week than full-time women. The gap is explained by many factors, including women's concentration in particular occupations and industries, gender bias and discrimination, and the effects on women of taking time out to look after others and having fewer years of workplace experience. The effects of these gaps are very significant over a lifetime of work. Over a 45-year career, this amounts to an average of $700,000 for all women, that's a lower level of payment over their working life, according to the ANZ recent gender equity report a week ago. The AMP NATSEM analysis shows that a 25-year-old woman walking out of this university with a bachelor's degree will, over her lifetime, earn $2.14 million, while her male equivalent will accumulate $3.66 million. Anne Summers has called this the million dollar gender tax on women. In fact, it's over 1.5 million for graduates and it starts very early in many occupations. Despite women's rapidly increasing investment in the education, the fact that they outnumber the people in our labour market who hold a degree, their pay hasn't shown any kind of educational dividend on average. So much for the economist's theory of human capital. We have to look at the much more subtle operation of economic, social, cultural, workplace and institutional factors to find explanations for this. It starts when you sink into his arms and ends with your arms in his sink. Men of the world, we're letting you know we women are acting on what we Socialization are wearing very thin. They're no longer in the matrimonial wed under men's arms are women pinned. Remember that humble Brady Bunch maid, let's give her one more look. Well, Alice has just stormed out of the kitchen screaming. You've been listening to excerpts from a talk recorded at the University of Queensland in Australia in 2015. The speaker is Barbara Pocock, a Professor of Economics and Deputy Chair of the Australia Institute. In this public lecture, Professor Pocock discusses the far-reaching consequences of the growth of women's participation in the Australian labour market in the past three decades. In his book on the 80s, historian Frank Bongiorno described many aspects of the lived experience in this decade that transformed Australia. Bongiorno described how clothing figured prominently when women changed men's public power. In popular memory, shoulder pads performed the same symbolic work for women's changing status in the 1980s as the bicycles and bloomers of a century before. Women dressed for success, or, as it was now often said, engaged in power dressing, embracing styles inspired by male business attire. Yet if they did so in the expectation that choosing the right set of clothes would puncture male dominance, they were surely disappointed. 
Power dressing demanded of women gender performance of a complexity that no man was expected to negotiate. She should dress so as not to look like the secretary. She should not exaggerate her bust. She should be feminine, but not too sexy. The rules were complex, the codes nuanced and changing. Women in conservative fields like insurance and law were advised to splash a bit of colour into their black, navy, grey, white or cream suits via a well-chosen shirt. In sum, women should look neither too masculine nor too feminine. They should be pleasing to the male eye, but not distracting. This is Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Brisbane Community Radio 4ZZZ. Today, we are looking at how things have changed in the last four decades in work and in play. We are discussing how changing patterns of work and play in the 1970s have meant for society, the economy, households and gender equality. We now hear from two journalists who speak about the participation of women in politics and on media. Anne Summers is first up. She continues with the theme of women's participation in the workforce, discussing the issue of inequality, which 40 years later remains an issue of burning contention in our society. In her book, The Misogyny Factor, Summer argues that jobs are still made largely in men's image, while responsibility for the household and care remains largely with women. We are still having this conversation in 2013. It's a full 50 years since the publication of Betty Friedman's The Feminine Mystique, the landmark book that chronicled the dissatisfaction of some highly educated middle-class American women who were fulfilling what was then considered to be their female destiny as full-time wives and mothers. There was no question whatsoever of them having it all, and it was driving them crazy. Frieden's book helped give rise to the modern women's movement, which argued that women have the right to a larger range of choices in how they live their lives and equal rights with men to pursue their dreams. Back then, all the talk was about how to break down the barriers that had kept women out of the workforce and all the other places they wanted to be. It was about redesigning our lives so women could be everywhere. A women's places in the House and in the Senate was an early slogan. And to do everything. No one thought for a minute that it would not be possible once the legal barriers were removed. Back in the 70s, the newly emerged and still energised women's movement presented its plan for women's equality to the newly elected Whitlam government in Canberra and found itself being taken seriously. Forty years on, the reforms begun in 1972 seemed to have faltered and women once again found themselves impatient for change. A book like The Misogyny Factor looks at the forces that are standing in the way of women's equality 40 years later. Anne Summers nominates three indicators of the success that we have yet to achieve. Inclusion, equality and respect. Until women are included in all areas of our society, until we are treated equally and with respect once we are there, we will not have succeeded in what Anne Summers calls the Equality Project. She nominates the misogyny factor as the obstacle. 
Briefly, the misogyny factor is the set of attitudes and entrenched practices that are embedded in most of our major institutions – business, politics, the military, the media, the church, academia – that stand in the way of women being included, treated equally and accorded respect. After its initial radicalism in the formation years of 1969 to 1971, the Australian women's movement, for most part, opted for a pragmatic approach to change. The movement seized upon the opportunity afforded by the election of the Whitlam government in 1972 to push for a realistic and achievable agenda. Equality was seen as a short-term objective, achievable principally through legislative and other government-supported measures that would be a mere stepping stone on the road to liberation. Little did the activists realize just how difficult achieving what they thought was the more modest goal of equality would turn out to be. A bitter lesson from the past 40 years has been the realization that we have not been able to guarantee that our reform will be permanent. It did not occur to the activists back then that a hard-worn reform could actually be unwound, reversed and repealed. When this occurs, the limitation of having relied so heavily on government become apparent. If a government was not willing to listen to the women's movement, what were we to do? We had not amassed a sufficiently powerful external organisation to compel the government to take notice of us. This has probably been our most intractable problem, and we saw its full impact during the Howard year of 1996-2007, when we watched women's equality stall and, in many respects, go backwards. We still do not have equal pay. The number of women at senior levels of our companies is still minuscule. Abortion is still a crime in at least two Australian states, and domestic violence is a major cause of homelessness for Australian women. Overall, you'd have to say that it is a rather bleak picture. If this were 1983, just a decade into the Equality Project, we could perhaps feel some pride in what we have accomplished, in how far we have come. But this is 2013. We have been at it for four decades, which is time enough to create a new and equal society, and surely time enough to ensure that the principles that ought to govern this new society are utterly embedded. And yet, this isn't the case. That was Professor Anne Summers' essay, The Misogyny Factor, read by Carolina Kaliaba. You're not a chef, no nothing that grand, but get back in that kitchen. You're barefoot, pregnant and chained to a stove, they wonder why we're bitching. But stride on forward, release your chains, your future's looking good. Pronounce the way it always should have been When men can cook their own food I said men can cook their own food And men will cook their own food We have witnessed an incomplete revolution in our lifetimes where the public world has simultaneously hungered for women's time while resisting renovation of the institutions that meet them at work and at home. What needs to be done for future fairness, especially in the context of an ageing population? Having lived through this incomplete revolution herself and participated in many of the major policy debates of the past three decades, Anne Summers reflects on where we are at, what working men and women need now and how we might get there. Closer to home, we'll hear from Amanda Collins, who started her career as a broadcaster with 4ZZZ before going on to work for the ABC. Amanda discusses how the station approached the issue of gender equality in its early days. 
It was interesting when I worked at Triple Z because I think for the first time there were three women on air during the day. There was myself, Linda Wallace and Joe Forsyth. And it actually led to a bit of debate about, you know, gender balance. You know, were there too many women? Were the women playing music differently? Were their voices a little bit annoying? You know, even at a very progressive place like Triple Z, you got that kind of conversation happening. And it became clear to a couple of us that the sorts of volunteers that were being attracted to the station were overwhelmingly male, like they were young punks or they were young students. They were, you know, young, confident, great young men, but men. And and I think it was possibly, for many sorts of women, a bit of an intimidating place. Like it was very groovy and it was very radical and, you know, people took drugs and all that sort of thing. So a few of us decided that we'd set up a women's collective within the greater collective and reach out... Um, to women in the community and it was good because we got single mums and you know slightly older women and women that didn't have a lot of education coming along and when it was thriving it became the megahers collective when it was thriving there were about 15 to 20 women involved but it was once again a really important training ground and gave women access to the media who, who otherwise would never have had that we just heard from amanda collins discussing how the issue of gender equality played out in the early days of four triple z Amanda started her career as a broadcaster with the Women's Collective through The Looking Glass, which in more recent iterations has come to be called Megahers. This recording of Amanda appears in A Comprehensive History of 4ZZZ in the Early Years, a video produced by Toad Show for the Taking to the Streets exhibition, presented by the Museum of Brisbane in 2006. You can watch the full documentary on the 4ZZZ channel on YouTube. Losing your direction? Then tune into Megahertz, 4ZZZ women's radio program. Lots of women's music, information, women's news and views. If you want to hear the noise she makes, then tune into Megahertz Sunday afternoon, 5 till 8. talking about women in the workforce in the past 40 years uh, and my name is Molly Frankham. In my experience my first proper job in the detention centres just sort of felt like there was that big revolution hadn't even happened yet because people were so open with their sexism and misogyny against female colleagues because it was such a masculinized workplace where traits of aggression and dominance were privileged. People had no issue being really sexist against their female colleagues. So sometimes it felt like feminism hadn't even happened in those small isolated pockets of the workforce. As a university student myself, there is a small majority of people graduating who are actually women students, yet still in the higher echelons of management of every single industry in the world, there are men. So it's difficult to imagine getting there myself and having already experienced hostility against my gender. It's difficult to kind of imagine myself anywhere other than a graduate entry job. And I think most of my um, colleagues at university who are women feel the same, that it's difficult to kind of aspire to something where there is not the image of yourself there. There especially aren't young people, young women. 
by the top. I vehemently believe in quotas. I think every workplace should um, introduce quotas in politics, in business, and not just for the genders, for minorities and people with different abilities, because quotas work. Yeah, it's all very well and good to talk about it, but without structural measures to undermine the current structural oppression, they're going to get nowhere. You're listening to a special documentary series about 4ZZZ's 40 years. We've been talking about the most gendered aspect of life, which is work. So far, we've been hearing from women workers. In our next story, we hear about men at work. Stay tuned. We look now at the kind of non-traditional work that men do in sheds. We're talking today about the far-from-genteel trade of printing in the 1970s, before the advent of desktop publishing. While more and more women joined the rat race, some men found fulfilment in their spare time. Contributions to what we call print culture were mostly made on a DIY basis. Wonder who made that awesome poster for that gig you went to a little while ago? Chances are it was made by someone in some small studio with their friends outside of work hours. Tony Kneipp and Matt Deasy were involved in this scene from the 70s to now. Both are formerly qualified printers who you'll hear discussing the posters and album art that caught their imaginations and the little-known stories from the local band scene. First we hear from Tony Knapp, who is best known for writing the anti-Joe song Pig City. In the 1970s, Tony designed and hand-printed thousands of music posters. This is Drew Hutton. He has been extremely um, prominent in the recent Lock the Gates campaign. This particular um, image is from when, uh, at the time of the uh, Commonwealth Games, the um, Queen Street Mall was just completed shortly before it, and they passed a whole lot of new laws, basically not allowing people to um, do public speaking in the mall and so on. And, and Drew locked himself to a tree as part of a campaign for free speech in the mall. So it's sometime, possibly a bit after the Commonwealth Games, probably about 1983. But uh, anyway, that's a, a photo of Drew Hutton um, with a solid-looking chain, and we can see the padlock around his waist with a bit of paper in his hand and uh, spreaking to the assembled crowd. And the kind of thing that... Uh, went on a lot over the years. Uh, radio was a, a fabulous thing for Brisbane with 4 Z. It gave a voice to a lot of people. But, uh, I mean, one of the things we need to remember is the history that 4 Z sort of came out of an activist movement involved, um, particularly with the anti-war movement uh, associated with the University of Queensland. This is a photo, that's a photo I've taken myself. The uh, opposition to the war in Vietnam... Uh, which sort of came to a peak in 1970-71 with the moratorium movement. And in 1971, we saw the uh, episode with the, the Springboks. Um, and um, that led to a sort of a continuing anti-racist movement, which had strong associations with the anti-war movement as, as well. 
what we see Drew doing here is part of a continuation of that whole activist tradition where people would go out, actually do public speaking in, in um, um, public places in the city, in King George Square, in the mall, and um, distribute leaflets in a very public way. Uh, people used to do an awful lot of handing out leaflets in the old days. Um, it was part and parcel of the whole activist thing. This is a uh, photograph of... Um, my friend Charlie Scandrett, when he and I actually had a print shop. Uh, so what we're actually seeing is the inside of that uh, print shop with stuff sort of lying in all directions. You can see a guillotine behind him. You can see just the very edge of a uh, large press in the right uh, edge of the photo, a big sort of wicker basket to the right full of uh, paper spilling out, some of it with inky bits on it. Um, and he's sort of got a ruler looking at a large sheet of paper, a whole lot of stuff lying in front of him. Uh, Notice there's a can of solvent on the bench, some earmuffs and so on. But we were right in the heart of, of um, Mary Street, almost literally a stone's throw from the executive building, in the front of an old building, which used to be, in years gone by, an engineering shop. They were using the back of it as a car park, and we had this little narrow space in the front. So we had that there for about three years, and uh, that was from about um, 76 to 79. We did a lot of printing there. We certainly printed um, four triple... Uh, Z membership cards and a number of other things for Triple Z and uh, an awful lot of leaflets. That's really what we were in the business of doing. Our main motivation was political. We used to do commercial printing to pay for our uh, passion, which was printing um, political leaflets and the like, and that would have been at the height of the whole um, right to march thing uh, when all of that was happening. So uh, that's sort of a, looking yet again at this issue of... Um, the various media that people have used over the years um, and printing was I think a lot more important in those days we didn't have the internet I still think it is important in a way uh, it's an incredible thing to be able to go online and put things up the, the biggest problem of course is whether people take any notice and there's a lot to be said for just going out in your local area and still pressing the flesh talking to people and handing them a leaflet and uh, the good thing about a leaflet is it requires no further storage than to Put it in your pocket. Have a look at it later. That was Tony Knipe, the singer of The Parameters, talking about how he used to subsidise the printing of political flyers. Tony speaks to Marjan to discuss a history of the last 40 years, which includes a generous dose of politics and music. That's a copy of the uh, single Pig City. People did specifically mention the uh, poster with Russ Hins on it, so I've got a copy of Russ Hins on the police bike, the police are with you, Pig City, and one of Terry Lewis holding the submachine gun. He's saying, we're here for your protection, and I was used those as posters to uh, advertise the single. The uh, photos without the wording are actually part of a collage on the inside. This was an idea that came from some of the punk bands in um, England like Crass of actually doing this cheap form of a single folder which is just a, a single folded sheet of paper. The good thing about it is it gives you plenty of room to do all this sort of thing with words, collages and so on so that's, and I, I guess that reflects my background in uh, 
printing, knowing how to do those sorts of things as well. At one stage, we used to be in the habit of chalking slogans up around the University of Queensland, part of our sort of campaigns there, and I remember chalking that up, and a friend of mine then was studying at the art college, and she did a silkscreen poster, which that is that is actually a re-rendering of. So she did a poster with that image and with the slogan, which has then been redrawn so that it was easier to reproduce for the cover, rather than just doing a photograph of it, we did a redrawing of it. photo of Terry Lewis holding a shotgun in the Pig City single has become one of the iconic images of the climate of repression that reigned in the Sunshine State for 20 years. But you may not know about the Japanese print if you've never actually seen the cover of the single. Kanto Times is another independent Brisbane publication that stuck it up the government of the time. Anne Jones was an editor, writer and organiser of the Times during the magazine's second phase. She talks about the work involved in collating the magazine's satirical illustrations and their production methods at the time computers first came into the picture in the 1980s. We used to have uh, editorial meetings in Westbourne um, Street in, uh, in West End. I guess the whole idea of an editorial meeting was to come up with themes for the issue, and we did this uh, every time. And then we uh, tended to uh, write uh, a letter out to all our potential sort of uh, contributors, people that we knew, people who we thought would be good to write or do a cartoon. For example, issue number two, the religious mysteries issue, we'd send out a, a sheet that said, you know, next issue coming up, religious mysteries, you know, what do you think about Catholicism? How did it ruin your life? And, and that kind of stuff. And, and that would go out and people would send back stories. Damien had a house in Main Street on uh, Kangaroo Point, just near the Gava, and uh, that, uh, that was the scene of a lot of the meetings where we'd have these group writing sessions and come up with ideas for quizzes and lists and silly stuff. And the, that segued into it becoming an, an office for the Canto Times. And uh, he had a flatmate, Buffy Lavery, who was a school teacher, and Buffy is a really uh, early adopter in terms of uh, computers and stuff, and she'd bought uh, one of the first Macintoshes available in Australia. And because she was a school teacher, she'd go to work between nine and three every day, and we'd go over to Damien's house, and we'd use her Macintosh to, to run uh, Kanto Times. By and large, we did do virtually all of the issues of Kanto Times at the Gympie Times. They were printed at the Gympie Times, and there was a lot of driving up in the middle of the night mm -hmm. to go to Gympie to print it. It was always printed on a, uh, a web press. Uh, that's one of the big presses that print newspapers, and it's done on a continual roll, and that gives it, gives it that sort of newspapery look. In later years, we, we had a separate cover printed and, and it had to be put together. 
Cainto Times uh, moved into a house in Lockhart Street, Woolloongabba, in early 1987. When we moved into our new office, we set up an arrangement where essentially we were all operating as freelance designers and writers and so forth. And we sort of set up like a little communal thing where we'd all put the money we earned into a bank account and 10% would go to the payment of the office and the photocopier, which was a pretty crucial bit of kit at the time, and the general running of the day-to-day -day organisation and the remaining money that we brought in, we, we would pay ourselves in wages. We had people all over Australia who would send in uh, stories we used to reject people quite a lot <laughs> and we'd get in stories and go, oh, that's not good enough and, you know, out and we, we, it was a pretty hard school. But we did go for 15 issues, uh, getting a lot of that material out in the world and I think it helped a lot of people establish their careers in different ways. So I think Canto Times was really uh, like a nursery for young writers and cartoonists and and various people who wanted to get their more edgy work out there in the world. Kanto Times didn't so much as uh, collapse as we all started to move on. The Bjorki-Peterson government was gone, the Goss government had arrived, it wasn't so much fun to poke fun at the Goss government. So we really just basically ran out of steam and time to do the Kanto Times. Kanto Times was really about going well, you know, it can't last forever. We cannot last Bjorki Peterson. The, the <laughs> government will change one day and we want to be part of, you know, building a new culture for Queensland. Our next guest is Matt Deasy, who runs Number 7 Print House from the ground floor of his Queenslander in the northern Brisbane suburb of Windsor. They print shirts and bags as well as posters for music gigs. Unlike the Cane Toad Times crew, for Matt, computers were not a novelty. He tells us in some detail about the attraction of hand-drawn music posters. The thing that I really like about this era of um, print, printmaking and um, poster printing is um, just how um, how almost crude and um, sort of simplistic the the um, process was in in creating them. Um, as you can see, this thing has like footprints on it and everything, so it was probably even at the festival and just ripped off the wall and someone went and sold them and I wound up with one. Uh, but I really like this style of graphics where it's um, one to two or three colours only. And um, this, this was a huge influence on my process because, um, you know, these are all, um, as I said, hand screen printed. And it just kind of shows the simplicity of, of, of making a stencil and even hand cutting it and all this text and everything that, that's, um, that's just been hand cut. Um, kind of got me kick-started that, that I could, you know, just hand cut stencils and create something that could be an advertisement for something. Uh, so one one more I guess from the from the larger stuff is this one, um, which I got as a teenager, which was on my wall as a teenager, and and um, this is another four triples that event, it's the um, Sonic Youth concert, um, which actually didn't happen. Um, it was um, I'll flip it around for you. 
it was um, the whole tour was cancelled, and so I just acquired this from a, from a record store. Yeah, it's a it's another time, it's another era, and again, I just kind of love the simplicity of the the graphics. Obviously, this is this is album artwork, but um, it's just like a one color um, print again, screen printed, and um, just um, you know, at a time where there was no internet, so therefore these large posters had to be made to notify people of events, which um, just uh, see, it doesn't exist anymore because uh, there's a there's an online system to tell people about events and stuff like that. And as soon as that came along, all this type of large format printing became obsolete, and actually just became really expensive, like an expensive way of advertising because. It wasn't necessarily needed anymore. So, some of it's um, hand stencils, and then other parts of it were developed using um, like a camera system. So, the thing about screen printing is, is that if you could get away with making a section of a print by hand, then people would do it. But then, if you needed to make intricate graphics like this text and logo, for example, and this stuff here, that had to be made with a a photographic camera, so um, basically these um, these logos and stuff like that are were designed in early um, com computer programs, but then to create them as a print, they needed to be um, printed out and then photographed in a quite a large camera that would um, then create a piece of film. So it goes into the whole photographic process of developing film to then burn to a screen to create a stencil. So these kind of things would be on my wall and I would look at them a lot and um, study them, I guess, and then try to figure out how they were created because I kind of just wanted to create them myself. Disco didn't get a good rap in the 70s at 440Z. At the height of its popularity, the whole genre used to be dismissed as shallow, shallow and post and vain and showy. Despite Disco's fame for vanity and expensive frocks, it's also rooted in some entirely respectable forms of music, such as funk and salsa. Like rock and roll, it owes a large debt to the innovations of African-American musicians as well as the aesthetic of American, Italian, Latino and gay dancing in the US in the 1960s. In the case of disco, the scene was largely started by gays and blacks and naturally gay blacks who obviously didn't fit anywhere. Like the young punks, they created their own scene they, and created their own music. From the vantage point of 2015, it can be easy to misremember punk rock as having purposely shunned the mainstream from the beginning. It is easy also to imagine that a clean divide has always existed between punk, disco and every other style of music. But if you were around in the 70s, you're likely to remember a time when the dividing lines between genres weren't so hard and fast. Even those with impeccable rock and roll credentials, such as the Rolling Stones and Blondie, got into disco and mainstream pop music. But Blair Martin, host of Queer Radio on 4 Triple Z, he was there first.
music I was into in the 70s was definitely not Triple Z's music. It was my favourite band is ABBA from Sweden. And in 1975, I saw their song Mamma Mia on a television program called Countdown. I was absolutely hooked. It was one of those songs that I just couldn't stop thinking about. And so from that day, big ABBA fan. So probably Mamma Mia by ABBA is a song that uh, means a lot to me. How is this song representative of the 70s? ABBA are probably the biggest band of the 70s. Certainly other bands like the Bee Gees, very big, but ABBA sold more records in more countries all around the world. They won the Eurovision Song Contest in 1974, the song Waterloo. They toured Australia. They had a television special filmed in Australia which had higher ratings than the moon landing which was only seven years before and they sold over one million albums and this is in a country at the time that had barely 10 12 million people so every household in australia owned an abba album why is this song meaningful to you because it's the song that got me into abba i know the year before on countdown which had only just started in australia they did play a little bit of waterloo i remember the, the host ian molly meldrum saying oh this man won eurovision this year i think they're going to be really big and i thought yeah that's a good song but mama mia is just one of those songs i was 13 i was just become a teenager these things mean a lot when you're a teenager they impact on your life it's just such a different song to every other pop song that had been around at that time you know two female vocals piano line really clean production do you have a favorite line from this song i think maybe even the opening line i've been cheated by you since i don't know when you know <laughs> it's like but it's a song that always says, you know, I'm going to give you another chance, you know. Yes, I've been broken-hearted, blues since the day we parted, you know. Why, why did I ever let you go, Mamma Mia? The 1970s as a teenager, I read everything about them. I collected a scrapbook of their press clippings and magazine stories. I recorded their TV specials. We didn't have a video recorder in those days, of course, in the 70s. They were very expensive, very rare things to have. So I would record them on cassette tape, audio tape, and I would listen to them over and over and over and over. And then in the 1980s, when you know I had a video, I'd collect video of ABBA, not just on Australian television when they were briefly here, but all around the world, watch the film clips. That sort of era of good pop music uh, I liked and certainly a lot of European pop music, which yeah, you, now you don't realise all came from different European countries. So, yeah, it was, it's a bit of a, a thing to look back and go, wow, that, I know that song from the 70s and they were actually from the Netherlands or Belgium or Israel or somewhere like that. And, yeah, I enjoy all that sort of stuff.
eternally ours. Brisbane's burgeoning band scene. Liverpool, San Francisco, Manchester, Seattle, Brisbane. Which is the odd one out? It's interesting how certain cities get a reputation for being a creative hotspot as soon as one or two bands from that place make a commercial breakthrough. The story of Brisbane's remarkable and distinctive music scene over the last 20 years is one of indifference, for the most part, from the west of the world. It is also one linked inexorably with the story of 4 Z. In 1975, Brisbane had no local band scene to speak of. Railroad Gin had topped the local chart with Matter of Time, while the sequined and mascaraed likes of Moonlight and James Elliott aspired to be good little pop stars. None of them raised a flicker of interest outside this city's metaphorical walls. Then came the most primal band in the world, and perhaps the most seminal at the time, The Saints. Their first single, initially released independently on the group's own fatal label, I Am Stranded heralded the birth of a Brisbane scene, the indie scene and, with others, the punk movement itself. With UK music press apoplexy, the Saints quickly broke out of their hometown and flirted briefly with chart success in England during that country's post-punk frenzy. But the impact of that first Saints single is better measured in the words of Robert Forster, who once said that hearing I'm Stranded on 4ZZZ inspired him to start his own band. With friend, Grant McLennan, the go-betweeners were formed and took off in various directions and even more varied lineups. For their first single... Lee Remick, however, the go-betweeners started the Abel label, which also released seven-inch singles, The Riptides, 77 Sunset Strip, Razar, Task Force, and The Apartments, Help, all 70s Brisbane classics. Although these releases would airplay on the station, the main function of 4ZZZ when it came to local bands in those days was in running regular live music venues where they could play. By 1979, 4ZZZ was organising entertainment for the Queens and exchange hotels in the city, while joint efforts began being held at the University of Queensland Refectory, with a typical night featuring a lineup such as Split Ends, The Humans, The Go-Betweeners and The Riptides. By organising shows for the acts who were popular on a mainstream level, 4ZZZ could provide opportunities for original local bands to support them, rather than having covers bands or mainstream-oriented groups. However, the Licensing Commission closed down both the Queensland and the York Hotels where 4ZZZ had been putting on regular bands up to six nights a week. Suddenly the live promotion aspect of the station was crippled and the suggestion of political motivation by the National Party state government was mooted. Certainly, it was not unusual for gigs at the hall, blind hall and so on to be disrupted by police, often in plain clothes, the task force, and with violence. Whatever the restrictions of the live environment, Brisbane bands continued to release cassettes and seven inches as the 80s began. Bands like Zero, The End, The Fun Things, Screaming Tridesman, Mystery of Sixes and JFK and the Cuban Crisis. At 4ZZZ Studios at the University, one of the rooms could be set up for a band to play and even to broadcast over the air. The Live to Air was born and one recording made at the station has passed into legend and became the ultimate statement of living under Joe in the 70s and the 80s, the Parameters Peak City. Unfortunately, like many of Brisbane's finest groups, the Parameters broke up before their single could actually come out. By Gary Williams, published in Radio Times, 1990. Just beware, Peak City, there's a demonstration in the square. Peak City, the boys in blue are everywhere. Peak City, see the blacks in the park. Peak City, hear the doors.
dogs bark. Hey city, they're keeping the city safe after dark. Hey city, the Minister for Corruption's working late. Hey city, what's a piece of the action in race eight? No SP here, he's ringing the state. Hey city, the blacks at Aracoon have to go. Hey city, to keep big business on the go. Hey city, while Joe gets shares in Camalco. Hey city, who was the bad man? Who was the hit man? Hey city, who were the front men? Who were the big men? Hey city, in the national scam. Select the Saints, and I'm stranded. I think uh, back in those times, I guess we didn't have the communication that we have now, and uh, often there's that ability to be away from people, and in particular, sometimes, yeah, feel like you're left out or left behind in some instances. Yeah. And um, and how is this song meaningful to you? Do you remember listening to it when you were growing up? Uh, yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, I was. I was hearing it later than uh, 76 because I was only uh, quite young when it was first released. Uh, but definitely hearing it many times over the years since its release and uh, people just being able to, you know, you know the words, you can sing along and um, definitely, yeah. And being positioned in uh, uh, the inner city, uh, definitely, you know, when people can uh, see, you know, old real estate and uh, think about, you know, where the song and, and even the film clip where it's positioned and stuff like that. It's, it's nice. So so what's the story of the song? What do the lyrics say? It's basically being stranded outside of the city because uh, the band, you know, back in the days, you know, some people might have been out Ipswich Way or in Brisbane and, and you know, relying on the train service and uh, getting getting to the inner city. And then um, the systems are not as good as they are today. And... Uh, 
being rock and roll and uh, being able to be with your friends is a, is a key part. Like a snake calling on a phone I've got no time to be alone Some are coming at me all the time You better think I lose my mind Cause I'm stranded on my own Stranded far from home Alright I'm riding on a midnight train But everybody just me the same It's something like a dirty reflection I'm lost, babe, I've got no direction And I'm stranded on my own Stranded far from home Alright Stranded, I'm so far from home Stranded, yeah, I'm on my own Stranded Gotta leave me alone Cause I'm stranded On my own Stranded Far from home Come on Does a man run at you? Made a man thing I can't do You lost your mind stuck in a world Your honey's such a stupid girl Now I'm stranded On my And that's the view from here. That was episode 5 of Radio in Color a special documentary series to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Radio 4ZZZ. We acknowledge the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Fund, without whom this project would not be possible. This show was recorded at The Edge Studios in the State Library of Queensland, as well as Radios 4EB and 4ZZZ. This show was produced by me, Carolina Caliaba, and by Steven Regal. Ni Adepoyib is our sound engineer, and Blair Martin is our trainer. Special thanks to our guests today, Professor Barbara Pocock, an economist from the Australia Institute, Tony Knipe from the Brisbane band The Parameters, Matt Deasy, a printer from Number 7 Print House here in Brisbane, Blair Martin, one of the hosts of 4ZZZ Queer Radio, and Peter Rawida, who manages ethnic community broadcasting station 4EB and who is a big fan of the Saints. To listen back to our stories, you can check us out on the 4ZZZ website, which is 4ZZZFM.org. 